Welcome to Raising Rochester. I'm Pete Navasny. Raising Rochester is brought to you by The Children's Agenda and focuses on the key issues affecting children and families in Rochester and New York State. My guest today is Kristen Rogers. Kristen is the Finger Lakes Regional Coordinator for the Career Development Center at the New York Early Childhood Professional Development Institute. Our conversation today focuses on Kristen's years of experience as a family child care provider in the city of Rochester. Child care based out of a family's home has declined steeply in Rochester over the past decade, despite often offering families a more affordable and flexible option compared to center-based care. I was really happy to be able to speak with Kristen about her experiences opening and operating a family child care program in Rochester, why she decided to close her program, and what she's up to today. Kristen Rogers, welcome to Raising Rochester. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Pete. I appreciate it. Great. Yeah, so I'm really excited for our conversation today. Uh, you and I used to work together, um, and I feel like the, the conversation we're going to have is a is like a summary of a lot of conversations that you and I have had over time about your experiences as a as a family child care provider. Before we kind of get into all that, I like to give our listeners a sense of um, you know our guest background and who you are, where you grew up, um, kind of the, the story of your you know, childhood, I guess, um, and then we'll get into sort of the, your professional experiences and such. So um, who's Kristen Rogers? Are, are you from Rochester or, you, um, or what was your background here in this community? I am a native of Rochester, born and bred here, grew up on the west side. Um, I'm an alumni of Wilson Magnet High School back in the day when there was only one Wilson. Little Wilson did not exist. <laughs> so that dates me for those of you listening. I am a mother of three, a grandmother of two. I have an associate's in marketing, bachelor's degree in child care administration, and a master's in organizational leadership. I wanted to kind of touch on that because your, your associate's degree doesn't, I think it lends itself to um, being a, a, a child care provider, but... Um, my understanding is you didn't you didn't graduate high school intending to become a family child care provider. So how did you how did you get into this work? I would agree, Pete. Early childhood was nowhere on my radar. Nothing that I had ever thought about. Um, when I graduated from high school, I definitely felt I wanted to be a business major. I was going to own a business, but child care was not what it was going to be. And so what happened was I had graduated from MCC with my marketing degree and I was working at a local um, organization in the city of Rochester and my boss was getting ready to leave and she told me to interview for her her position, um, which I did, but I did not get the position. Um, They hired an outside person, but they came around and asked me to train this person. Mm. And... That's what led me to this path of early childhood. I decided to, hey, I'm not going to do that. That doesn't sound right by me for me to train someone who's going to be my supervisor. Um, So I had to go in my arsenal of things. What could I do on my own that I could just start up and be the business person that I want to be? I thought about um, doing taxes because that's something I do. I'm good with numbers, but that was going to take too much money. So I was like, hey, I babysat children throughout my high school career. I was even a summer camp counselor. So, hmm, let me look into doing that. And at the time, my two boys were going to a family child care provider. So I just went to her and asked, how do you get started in this? And she said, oh, you just have to go to the child care council, and there's an information session you have to go through, fill out an application, and you're on your way. And that's just what I did. I went to the child care council, went to the info session. Um, Back then, they gave you like a health and safety kit. 
I got cribs, some startup toys. I remember you get all the uh, smoke detectors and fire extinguishers and all that. And I kind of set up shop. Um, at the time, I think I worked for maybe six months before I actually quit my job altogether. I went down to part-time status first because, again, I'm no dummy. I still need to bring income, <laughs> income into the mm-hmm. home. But within six months, I was at capacity. So then I just walked away and... My family thought I was nuts. Um, my husband at the time was supportive, but my mom and many friends were like, you would leave a corporate job to go open a family daycare. They didn't understand. Yeah, so I'm curious, the act of kind of converting your house into you know, a, a licensed or registered childcare program, um, you know, where you have inspections and there's this regulator from Office of Children and Family Services who comes out and checks those smoke detectors and, and things like that. I guess what was that like, kind of having to open up your house for for sort of regular, you know, safety inspections? And and there's, as you and I have spoken about, childcare is like a heavily regulated field for good reason. We want to make sure that kids are are safe and that the environments that are being cared in are, um, you know, appropriate for them. But but I always think, you know, like I don't know, my house is frequently a mess. <laughs> you know, there's things that are not probably up to to standard code. Um, what's that like, kind of having your your home also act as your as your business and as a, um, a place that a you know a stranger can kind of come in and and inspect I mean is that a does that take an adjustment or was that just sort of like you that's just part of the the kind of world you're entering into how'd you sort of approach that um in the beginning it was an adjustment um, we had to change some things around I'm fortunate that my house had like a we have like an inside porch and so I was able to have a separate entrance so they could come in the back entrance. They don't really have to walk through my house. And there were two rooms that were just set up just for childcare, and the other rooms in the house were for my family, aside from the bathroom that we all had to use. So mm-hmm. after some rearranging and stuff, I think it took my family more time to get used to it, my children. So they knew, like, when they came home from school, they couldn't be chilling. Just, yeah. just chilling downstairs. They had to go upstairs because mommy is still working, and we have children and other children in the household. But other than that, after a while, you get used to them coming into your home. And, you know, as long as you're running things properly, I never had a problem with people have, yeah. with having them come in my home. You come in, you show them the rooms that the children use. So um, it was helpful. I, I'm not sure if that has changed since I've been out of the game, but they didn't have to go in any of my bedrooms and stuff. If the children didn't have access to the rooms, the, regist- the licensors, they don't have to go in those gotcha. rooms. So yeah. um, that made it a little more plausible. Like, you don't need to be looking everywhere yeah, yeah. besides the rooms that the children actually are in yeah and you don't have a person from from the state checking <laughs> to see how messy your son's rooms are right? so it's uh yeah that's that's a good point um so how did you uh, i guess like market your your program how did you you know make people aware of the fact that you were a provider you know was it in i guess i'm wondering about referrals and things like that was it mostly word of mouth did you have to do any kind of advertising yeah, i mean i know people also get referrals from the child care council but how did that sort of like particularly as you opened up, how did you draw in customers, families to, to um, entrust their children with you? So yes, that is quite difficult. In the beginning, I did have to do some um, newspaper advertising, which can be a little costly. Um, there was a, a city newspaper used to do advertising, which was much cheaper than the Democrat and Chronicle, so I would do that. I actually printed out flyers and walked to my neighborhood, putting flyers indoors. I also utilized the Child Care Council. I'm not sure how many people throughout my 15 years of doing that that I actually got from the Child Care Council. After I got my first family, I think I might have been two months in, 
you know, like, okay, is someone going to come to me and trust me with their child? Yeah. And a, a family um, came to me. They had two little boys. Um, but they only wanted part-time, but I took it. Like, okay, we'll start here. Yeah. And after that, it was a lot of word of mouth. Um, families would come. They would have coworkers who are having children, and they would recommend me. Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty much how I got a lot of people. So in the beginning, it was like a lot of advertising, um, walking around with flyers, telling anybody and everybody I knew what I did, um, yeah. that I was open, I had spots open. And then after that, it just became a word of mouth. When you first opened, you were a family child care provider, which um, which means you can have six children plus six, six younger children under school age, right? Plus two um, school age children for like after school care or, or, you know, summer care, right? And then eventually you became a group family child care provider, right? Which is Which is double. So you can have um, 12 kids plus the four school-age students as a maximum, right? Um, How did you decide to, to kind of expand that? And, and the other piece of that, right, is that you then have like an employee or employees. And, and how did you sort of transition to becoming um, like a larger uh, child care provider and operating a larger business and, and all that? And was there support for, for you as you, you know, took on that larger responsibility and had more kids and and what kind of training? I guess I'm just curious as to what goes into becoming a, a group family child care provider. So I would say the choice to do it was made by the demand from my families in care who were going on to have their second children. Mm-hmm. And so asking would I have spots available for them? And I had to think like, if I don't find spots available, they're going to take their child that currently with me somewhere where they can have both of their children going at the same time because nobody wants to be dropping off one child here and one child there. That's a bit difficult. Yeah. So I made that decision um, that, hey, I'm going to try to go group family. Um, you would just think that is probably you could just do a checkbox that I'm already a family provider. You can just go right to group family. But family providers are what they call registered um, by the state, and that was handled by um, the Child Care Council. Mm -hmm. Um, To be a group family provider is handled by OCFS, and so I had to actually go fill out a whole nother application and go through the process of all the paperwork and having someone come out to approve me to be group family. Mm-hmm. So that took, it took a little while, but after I was approved, I didn't think I wasn't gonna get approved. I just didn't love, like, you have to go through all the process yeah. all over again, like, like, as if it was a separate system. Yeah. Then uh, to find someone, that was a bit difficult because, you know, a lot of group family providers are run by two friends or two family members. Mm-hmm. and. There was no one in my circle who was messing with kids. Kids were for Kristen. So I actually <laughs> had to do another some advertising in papers, collecting um, resumes, and having people come to my home for interviews. And you get the plethora of people coming. You get professional people that saw that this still was employment to dress accordingly and come prepared. And then you got people that after, you know, when they call about the position and I tell them about, oh, it's a home daycare, they would just show up any old way, mm. <laughs> anyhow, and it's like, number one, you're looking for employment. Number two, I'm going to be a little extra particular because this is someone that has to be in my home where I live with my family. Yeah. And so it can't be just anybody off the street. So, yeah. um, But I lucked out and I found a wonderful, actually two wonderful people. So I needed a, I had a full-time assistant and then a young lady that was part-time. So um, obviously I have to follow the you know labor laws and they can't work all day. And I was open from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So I had to have two people, but 
Um, I was fortunate to find them. Um, they worked out great. But I went through a lot. It wasn't just like, bam. I went through, yeah. <laughs> I interviewed a lot of people before I made a selection. Yeah. Did you like put them in front of the kids, see how they interact? I mean, what's sort of the... Yeah, so they would come to me for the first interview and I would walk them through an interview. They answered some, I had a little uh, survey that they answered some questions about childcare because like most people, well, I love kids or I have yeah. kids and... Yeah, but what do you actually know about child care and yeah. supporting a child's growth? And then if I like them, they will come back for round two. And round two means you need to come in for a good hour of your day and come into my program and let me see how you interact with yeah. the children. And that would say a lot. A lot of people didn't make it past that step because if you're coming in there and, you know, you're dressed to the nines, like, we get dirty here, so the kids mm -hmm. are going to touch you with their finger hands. And if yeah. you don't like that, this is not the place yeah. for you. So I weeded a lot of people, candidates out when they come to be interacting with the kids. When it gets to that part, they're saying, no, this is, this is not for you. Yeah. Through our, our conversations over time, I, I'm, I've, I was always really struck by how you, and not surprised, I should also <laughs> add, but you really strive to provide, like, a really great experience for the for the kids that – or in your care and for the families that trusted their children uh, with you. I guess how, uh, so I'm just sort of, tell me some of the things, I mean, I know you went on like field trips with the kids, you did, you always had like lots of activities that you were headed planned. Um, is that just, I'm guessing it, that's just like the way you are, but was there sort of support? And I mean, I know there's training and, and professional development opportunities and, and obviously you went on to get a, um, you know, a, a bachelor's in, in administration of childcare programs, but how would you sort of identify like the the things to do every day the the field trips again like what was the what was your process for trying to figure out how to to structure like a really high quality program for these kids in your care so a lot of it i want to think was just looking at myself and as a mom and what kind of place would i want my child to be in what would i want them doing with my child um, I think a lot of times when people think of home child care, they figure that oh, these children are just in this person's home watching TV all day. And I wasn't about to set up like that. I believe in knowledge. Um, I'm a knowledge seeker as well. And so I know that I wanted an educational program. And I wanted also for the children to experience things. They were with me Monday through Friday more than they were with their parents. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, parents come home feed them, put them to bed. And so I wanted to make sure that they got as much experiences in the outside world as I could give them. Um, so field trips around Rochester, I think especially in the summer months, we were always gone. So if your child was not dropped off by 10, you have to find where my name of my business was you and me childcare. You had to find where our vans were <laughs> at. Um, Cause we, I think we visited every park around here. The furthest trip I ever took them to, and this is where trust comes in, we went to um, Niagara Falls. So we went to see the uh -huh. American side of the falls and visited the aquarium there. And, it, you know, most people are like, How, why would you do that? Because I wanted to show them any and everything I could. We went to the Corny Museum of Glass. Um, we would go to Darien Lake, Seabury. Yeah. So, of course, the Strong Museum <laughs> was very popular. Most of the families um, had memberships, yeah. so it was free for their children to get in. Yeah. But um, we got them out and about. There is no sitting, sitting around. And then I learned about quality programs also, talking to other providers that I met, going to the trainings at the Child Care Council, and doing a, what you guys would say Google searching, but back then it was Yahoo was popular. <laughs> so just doing searches and looking up what programs were offering. Um, 
from the Child Care Council, I obtained my CDA credential, which is the Child Development Associate in Family Child Care. It's a national credential um, because when you are a provider, back in my day, it was you had to take 30 hours of training every year annually. Um, now that has been changed to every two years. But in my day, it was every year, and the trainings were the same year after year after year. They got monotonous, just boring little things like how do you potty train or just the basics for people who are just getting in the business. But there wasn't really anything out there for someone trying to expand. So I did the CDA. I obtained that um, because that was a way to improve my program that was showing that I was serious about this, that I have credentials. Because being a home provider, you really just have to have a high school diploma. You don't have to go on. But that doesn't mean the quality is less. Um, but I, I chose, I like knowledge. From there, I, my program became accredited by the National Association of Family Child Care Centers. That was the next step I took. And I learned that by being in the CDA program and some other program providers were in there letting me know like, oh, this is what we're gonna do after that. So I went on to do that. You had to get your program set up and someone comes out and reviews your program. They stay with you pretty much half the day <laughs> and just yeah. watch you to see how and you know, rate you. Because um, this was before um, New York State has quality stars, yeah. but this was before quality stars ever existed. So I got my program accredited. So the CDA, I would say, stays with me. I can go and get employment and say I have a CDA. You can get it in infant and toddler. You can get it in preschool or you can get it in family child care. And that can go with me where accreditation stays with the program. Yeah. So, um, but those are just things that I did for me and myself. Then I learned about um, Sudi Empire State College and that you could go there unmatriculated um, and take courses there. And those courses, like three, four credit course there could equal like 20 hours of training that you needed. Yeah. So I opted to start doing that instead of taking these basic one, two hour trainings that were provided by the Child Care Council or OCFS. Um, because they weren't helping me grow. Do you think that there should be more of a kind of a continuum of training? So as someone does open that business, they may need those those entry level trainings, the kind of childcare 101 stuff, because that's, you know, they're brand new to this. I, I hear your point about sort of the repetitiveness of doing that every year. Do you think there should be kind of requirements of, of kind of growth in terms of that training? Um, that sort of someone's in their fifth, sixth year of being a childcare provider that they should be required to do some of the things that you did optionally, or I could see some downsides to that to that too. Um, but what's your sense of kind of where the our sort of professional development expectation should be for the for the childcare, uh, particularly for for family childcare, because that's what we're talking about now. I would say that there should be offerings. So, do I think they should be required? I wouldn't necessarily say so because education is great, and I always support being educated, but just because you have a master's degree and something doesn't mean you're great at it. And so mm-hmm. caring for children is, you know, how they say you have a street sense and then common sense, you know, yeah. it, it, it is a, pulls at your heartstrings. So, you know, you could be as educated as you want to be and still not be the best provider. Yeah. And so, but I want to think there were really no offerings. There was nothing really out there besides the CDA to really speak to if you've been in the field for a while and then after you get your CDA like you, you're not going to go through the class again um, you have to take courses to renew it to keep mm-hmm. it renewed but 
it's just the same old, same old. So they don't really have like a stepping stone professional development um, yeah. out there unless you plan to return to to school. Yeah. And sometimes, especially for family providers or really just anyone, that's not always an option financially um, yeah. due to due to funding. So you may want to go back to schooling, you know, get some more education, but that might not be feasible um, depending on your income. So childcare in, in New York, broadly speaking, in terms of the that whole licensed registered system we, we, we spoke about, it's there's that difference between kind of how you're regulated, let's say. But then there's also childcare is really provided in two places, right? It's provided in people's homes as a family or group family child care provider, or it's it's like center based care, which is not at someone's home and it could have as many kids in classrooms as, as the building can accommodate. So I guess my question is, what's what do you think the why did certain families um, identify like home-based care as, as what they want? And, and what do you think are the, the sort of relative advantages of home-based child care versus, um, you know, center-based care? So I would say when it comes to home-based child care, one of the biggest advantages, and this is just from my perspective, is the continuity of care. I can have a child from infancy till they need to go off to school. You get to really know that child. You get to really know that family. It's a very intimate relationship, mm-hmm. unlike when your child goes to a center-based program when their age determines what classroom they are in. So And so they move from classroom to classroom, hence teacher to teacher. You know, there's a few programs that the teachers move with them, but that's few and far between that I know of. Yeah. And most of the time, they're not with the same teacher even through, you know, even if the teachers have moved, centers have a much ton- turnover. Yeah. Usually when you're at home, it's, it's going to be me. If it's a group family, it's going to be me. My assistant might change, but it, it, I'm going to be the same. Um, but in a center, you're going to get turnover and turnover and turnover um, most of the time. And then they have to keep continually moving rooms. So though you may build relationships, I don't think that they are as intimate. Mm-hmm. I would say the downside pretty much to a home program is that if we're closed or we're sick, we're pretty much closed. You need to find alternate care where, you know, if you go to a center and the teacher's sick, they usually have a backup person. It doesn't mean you can't bring your child to the center. I would say home daycare, though, is going to give you more flexible hours. Um, There's daycares that are open during, you know, the nine to five workday. But there are many that do after hours. They might do the three to 11 workday. There's some 24 hours home care. So you'll get a better option if we want to meet the needs of, you know, people that work at the hospital. The hospital never closes. They have children. And so you're not going to find that in a child care center. They're going to do the typical 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. shift of the common work schedule. Yeah, and I think particularly uh, with that increasing amount of like people working evenings or overnights and healthcare jobs, things like that, um, you know, it's a really critical support that families need. Even if the child's school age, um, you know, they need, if the parent works a nine to five job, well, they need a couple hours of, of care, but if the parent works you know, the three to 11 shift, like they might need a lot of time, you know, they need somewhere to go after school. And so, yeah, having that flexibility uh, can be, can be great for families. It can also be draining for that provider, right? To have kids in their home for more than, you know, 12, 15 hours a day. Um, and families have different schedules and all that. So it's, it does have that flexibility, but, but I think as you and I spoke, there's also <laughs> some burnout that occurs when a provider tries to do that too much. Um, 
the other thing I, I you know noticed and I mean you know me I, I look at a lot of the, the the data around this but the um, home-based child care in our community in, in Monroe County is is primarily um, located in, in the city of Rochester particularly in you know black neighborhoods in, in the city of Rochester and I'm, I'm curious as to you know as I've, I've gotten out there and gotten to know different people working in the in the child care world there's I think there's a dynamic that a lot of of home-based child care programs are owned and operated by often African-American women, um, uh, whereas a lot of centers are, um, they may employ staff from a variety of different um, backgrounds, but they're, they're much more likely to be, you know, the, the upper management and ownership is uh, white. And I'm curious, do you think there's a sort of a, a like a cultural preference that's out there for, for families, particularly black families, um, identifying home-based care um, more often? Or do you think there's some other dynamics in play? Like, what do you make of like why there's so many more, you know, family and group family childcare programs in in Rochester than there are in, you know, the the suburbs around it? So I would look at that like you know it's 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 not a cultural thing that you know if I have a child and I'm looking for care that I'm going to go as African American woman to a home child care. I think it's just a a preference of different families. There Mm -hmm. are some families that might come to me and say I would never put my child in a home care. It maybe you've heard some horror stories, you know, but horror stories. You and somebody else might hear a horror story. Oh, this happened to my friend's kid at a center, so I would never go to a center. So it's all in what you feel comfortable with um, and your perspective. You know, when you hear stories, though, you shouldn't group every program together. Absolutely. But as far as home providers being mainly in the city and African-American versus owning centers, I definitely have to say, obviously, there's barriers. So a home provider, it doesn't really take too much cost to open a home. Mm -hmm child care you know most providers probably will have been um, moms of their own so you already have toys and equipment and stuff yeah. inside your home it doesn't take too much of a financial commitment to start versus going to open a center you need some financial commitment and so we can see that you know non-african-american people they have that benefit of being able to walk inside of a bank and get some funding or apply for a grant um I had thought about opening a child care center and the child care council did have a class on that, but even going through the class, it was just very overwhelming for me and just made me like, there's no way with the funding and stuff that I was going to be able to do that. You know, I would have needed somebody to back me to come in and give me the support of money. So those financial barriers definitely would be, would be a drawback, you know, if you don't have even business acumen to be able to go out yeah I got to search for a property and now yeah. you got to get a loan and all that stuff so without supports and knowing how to do that many people aren't going to try and do that plus then you have all the overhead yeah so now you need to employ more people and then you have all the overhead so another advantage of home daycare is that if you're paying out of pocket the cost is very much less than if you're paying for a center. And a lot of families don't understand that. I've been a center director as well. Why, you know, it costs so much. Like, we have overhead. Now I have to pay rent at this building. I'm paying salaries. I'm paying benefits for employees. You don't have to do all of that when you have a home daycare. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's all really interesting and and, um, illustrative, I think, of, of, you know, what you were saying in terms of the access to capital and, and things like that when you have enormous income and wealth disparities in a community, it's going to play itself out in all sorts of different places. And I think this is 
this seems to be one of them. Um, so then eventually you you decided to to close your um, child care program. Why did you why did you decide to do that? And, and how long between how long did it operate for? How many years were you um, in operation? So I operated for 15 years and again the program in a way kind of closed itself. So um, there was a period of time when families were losing work. We were having like a little recession and you know if one parent's going to stay home then and you need to cut expenses, what are you going to cut? You're going to cut child care. And so even my financial circumstances had changed due to divorce. So I was a single mom now. So, you know, when you're married, kids come and go in child care. Never really worried about it. You know, one kid would leave. It might be a couple of weeks later, you'll get another child. And that flexible income is doable when you have a second income. So when you're married, you have a second check. And, you know, you're not going to, you know, get too frustrated. But when it came to that, I was a single mom, I was by myself, and everything was up to me. A child leaving is a little detrimental, especially when you have a lot of children on subsidy. So um, the difference between, I had both private pay and subsidy parents. I want to say it probably been 75% were private pay, 25% were on subsidy. And the thing about subsidy is that we watch a child for a whole month. So I watched them for the whole month of April. I'm not going to get paid until the third week. I believe it used to be that third Friday in May. Yeah. Versus when I have a private pay, they paid me Friday for the week before care, so I'm always getting paid. And so the thing about subsidy, if I'm waiting for a payment, you hope to get paid that third Friday, but that's not always the case. Yeah. You know, if the client didn't hand in a paper or the worker didn't do something on their end, that check doesn't come for you, but my bills are still there. Yeah. And so that became difficult for me, and um, I decided that I still want to stay in early childhood, but I needed to go get a steady paycheck. So um, I decided to close. Most of my family stayed with me until the very last day. And even closing, let's say, it took me about a year after I made the decision. Um, It was about a year that I was out looking for employment in the field and before I actually... um, shut down because the other thing is even though I had ran a family business on my own translating that back into the early childhood field um, because the center requirements are higher was a little bit challenging Mm -hmm. so I thought I could just go from being a a provider a home provider to go be in a center director and that definitely was not the case so I had been like I said unmatriculated taking classes at SUNY Empire State and I had went when I first was starting like I'm going to close let me see if I can interview and to be a director you, you got to have some education so I had not had my bachelor's degree yet I found out about this program called the Children's Program and Administrator's Credential here in New York State that they were offering and so if you did not have a bachelor's degree you could get this credential mm-hmm. and so it was being offered at Empire and so I started taking those classes and I ended up getting a bachelor's degree because um, one of the advisors at the college said, you've been going here for so long, unmatriculated. <laughs> do you ha- ask me that I have an associate's degree? Um, yeah, I do. And then one day she sat down with me and just counted up all the credits that I had, yeah. even unmatriculated. And like, if you matriculate, you only would need like a year yeah, you're nearly there. to, get your, <laughs> to yeah. get your bachelor's degree. And so I turned that CPAC credential coursework into my bachelor's degree. So instead of going through 
all the process of afterwards usually you have to make a portfolio and then somebody has to come out again and review you i just made it into all the credits into a, a bachelor's degree and even after i got that i was still getting pushback um because many people were saying well you're coming from home care and being a center director is totally different and for me in my head i just thought okay well you guys really just have more children yeah. and more employees but the underlying Rules and regulations are the same. Yeah, yeah. And so I actually um, had to do a stint at Head Start. So, um, you know, jobs they were offering me at centers where you could be a classroom teacher or you could be assistant director, but what they were paying was just ridiculous. Like, yeah. I could make more watching these couple kids here, a yeah. couple kids here, than going back into the workforce. But yeah. eventually I decided to take the position over at Early Head Start at Hart Street because of all the positions that I was offered, they paid the most. Yeah. But even with their great pay, I actually still had to have a part-time job in the evening in order to support my family because mm-hmm. it just wasn't the same as when I was doing it my, by myself at home. Yeah. Yeah, it's a trade-off between the kind of guarantee of pay and, and the certainty of that paycheck when you're yeah. working for someone else and versus the changing enrollment or like you were saying, um, you know, the, there is actually, there's a bill that hopefully the governor will sign that will require a direct deposit to be available to child care providers, which is not currently the case. So oh, the wow, paper that check would be thing, wonderful. Even, yes. you know, it's like 2021, we're finally going to get around to, to um, hopefully uh, having direct deposit for um, child care providers who are receiving um, subsidy, which, you know, is probably 25 years uh, overdue, a bit better late than ever. Um, so... I'm also curious, um, so what year did you close uh, your program there? So I shut down in 2013. Okay, so that was also around the time that pre-K was really starting to kind of ramp up, although I think it's a, you know, it, it's even ramped up even more now because of three-year-old pre-K. What, what role do you think the rise of pre-K, um, full-day pre-K in, in this community um, has played to, there's really been a declining number of of home-based child care providers i mean every year there's fewer um, than the prior year um, in this community which is a real really unfortunate thing i think in terms of of families having choice and and availability of different options and uh, something that works that's in their neighborhood or near where their their place of work is so what role do you think the expansion of pre-k's had on home-based child care and like why has it had that that impact so yes, I can uh, speak to that because in the beginning when I first opened up, like I said, children would stay with me from infancy or whenever they entered my program until you know they had to go to school and you only have so many school-age slots. Um, when pre-K started coming around, that kind of changed. So you know, it was like send your kid to pre-K and I think a lot of parents, because pre-K, you know, seems school-like, you know, it's yeah. different. They, they think it's different from childcare in some way, and it's, 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 it's really not. And so a lot of parents were pushing to get their children into what the Head Start or these pre-K programs inside of schools because they thought somehow that, you know, you can't get that same education within a home-based system. And so now I was having to have children that were leaving me or you know, if they were lucky enough, I would say to get into the Head Start program, which provided transportation, 
they were leaving my program midday and coming back, mm-hmm. which now instead of getting paid for a full time slot, especially if you were sub- a subsidy person, now I'm getting paid for a half time slot because a uh, county's not going to pay you for the time a child is not present in your program. Yeah. So that even cut back. But I did definitely see a push of when children were starting to turn four because there was no EPK yet. Yeah. That families were looking to leave. They were looking like my kid has to go to pre-K again. You are child care and making this distinction between child care and pre-K. And prior to that, children stayed with me. And when they used to go get their kindergarten assessments, I, you know, I heard parents come back to me that say teachers were even surprised. Like, wow, they, they're well ready for kindergarten, like even overlay. I mean, I had children tying shoes and <laughs> you can write your name and, yeah. um, and they went to a home care. And it's, so it's just like this stigma out there yeah. of, you know, you know, I'm pretty sure there are some programs that, you know, aren't up to par, but there are many, many more that are if, if you actually give them a chance. But, you know, we can't necessarily compete with people's mindset of, you know, pre-K is school. Yeah. It's also hard to compete with free, right? <laughs> and it's free, yes. Yeah, and so, it's free. And which it's is free. A, <laughs> an important con- uh, consideration that families have. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and then I think the other, to state the obvious, um, although I'm not sure how familiar everyone is with, uh, all of our listeners are with the intricacies of, of the ratios, but children under the age of two, you can only have two of those kids per adult, right? Correct. And so if, whereas you can have up to six kids who are over the age of two, and so from an income perspective, if you're, you, you don't have those four-year-olds anymore, and then increasingly you don't have those three-year-olds anymore, there's just fewer kids that you can like legally serve. Um, and you can't, it's hard to make a living just caring for two kids, or maybe there's a, you know, a, a kid who's over two, but not yet in one of these programs yet. So the, the sort of business model, the regulation around um, ratios, safety, it all kind of combines to make it increasingly financially difficult for a um, a home-based provider to to make ends meet, right? Most definitely, most definitely, yes. You now you are running into kids just leaving. Um, you know, at least you could have them maybe until three, and so now I don't even know how they would do it because you know, by you have EPK now, so you know yeah. you're only going to get these kids for the first two years of their life and have yeah. to keep repeating, repeating, getting new children. That does make it very, very difficult. Yeah, um, yeah and I don't think we figured out how to kind of blend these things together because even kids who are in EPK or we'll say three-year-old pre-K or four-year-old pre-K, they, you know, school's only 180 days a year. So there's still a lot of times in which they're not in school, but um, there's, you know, there's breaks, there's summer, there's after school time if those parents are working, you know, until five or seven or or whatever. Um, So there still might be some care needs that, that those children and families have, but the to your point about the payment for part-time care isn't as great and um, it's hard for that provider to maybe operate just on school breaks, you know, (laughs) like there's a lot Mm -hmm. of other days that, so it becomes really difficult for providers to remain open to provide care in those non-school times, Um, but yet families still may need that care. So So then they're juggling, you know, trying to make arrangements you know, week to week and things like that. So we have to figure out something. I don't know. We really haven't haven't done this yet, but we really do need to to find a way to blend, um, you know, some of these uh, expansions of pre-K programs with sustaining the the childcare infrastructure, whether it's 
um, you know, home-based or, or to centers have a sort of a different dynamic, but, but yeah, it's a real, um, it's put a lot of pressure, uh, I think on, on the childcare industry, which ultimately then puts pressure on families too. So I would agree. I think a lot of them, you know, st- stay open to an extent only because, you know, if you have a child that is in, um, pre-K, pre-K is not all day. And so if you have a working parent, yeah. they need before and after care in pre-K. And so a lot of times child care centers can accommodate all the, you know, you can have more in a pre-K class than you can actually in a child care classroom. So they can accommodate um, the before and after. So that's where some home providers have been able to, you know, okay, we can take you. We're a little more flexible because, you know, you don't want someone coming to your program, you know, a center is usually not going to take a child for two hours in a day. They don't yeah. make any. They don't yeah. make any money. Yeah. A home provider will be more flexible and say, "Okay, I can take your child after afterwards." So you know, or they get, or you get lucky enough to have a family that does work a nine to five and they can't do, especially the city school district pre K because they don't provide transportation. Yeah. So you know, there's not too many jobs you can work where, hey, I can get off. Especially if you do not have a vehicle, I got to get off and go get my child from this school yeah. and then take them to daycare. So you you might get lucky and get those families who I would like to put my child in pre K, but it's not going to accommodate my working schedule. So yeah. they'll leave them in the family yeah. in the family daycare. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough sell to a lot of employers to say I have to go. Like catch a bus and, yes. and get them back in school, get them to childcare, and then I'll be back in you know two hours or something. But so yeah, that's and even if you have a car, that's still like that's for a lot of jobs, that's just not not going to be uh you know allowed. So so yeah, there are still some areas where again, as you're saying, I think the flexibility of family childcare or family childcare makes a lot of sense um, for families. But but the kind of increasing enrollment in, in pre K does seem to be straining the the system overall or the child care system overall and particularly home-based care so obviously you have a passion for this stuff i mean i think that's pretty clear from from how you've spoken about it and how you operated your program and and sort of the the way you kind of continually strove to better yourself through trainings and and um, to give kids and families all these opportunities um i think that kind of plays into what you're up to now uh, professionally so Tell us a little bit about what what you've been doing um, with, um, you're officially employed through CUNY, the City University of New York, but they have this professional development uh, institute and you're you're doing stuff in our region. So so what are you, what are you doing now? So my title is the Finger Lakes Early Childhood Regional Coordinator. So uh, I am over the nine county economic Finger Lakes region and I am bringing career and college advisement supports as long as professional development for new and aspiring leaders in the field. And what that means is, so on the career development side, I can help, you know, if you're interested in getting um, certified as a teacher, we can support you through that process. We can support you with college placement. If you're looking to get education, we can um, provide funding for you. We can help you with resumes. If you're looking for a job in the field, we have an employment board. We can help with succession planning for leaders who are looking to leave the field. You know, if you're looking to get your CDA or your CPAC credentials, we can assist you in doing that. And then on the leadership development side, 
that we do a lot of things so you can network. So we have a networking meetings, we have book groups, we have panel discussions. And so that's so, you know, leaders in the field, you don't feel so alone. So when I finally got, you know, after my stint at Early Head Start, I finally got maybe about a year later, hired as a center director, which was, had been my goal. And it's funny, it was a, uh, at a place that I had interviewed at the year before and they denied me. So <laughs> I came back through, they were yeah. hiring again and I got picked up. But there was really no, su- actually no support. You know, when you're a center director, you kind of feel alone yeah. um, in your program, depending on how your owner operates. And so um, we provide supports, a system where, you know, like-minded individuals can come and talk to one another, you know, listen to, you know, what's going on in the field, listen to, you know, share ideas, how do they can make improvements. And it's not just open to, I want to say childcare providers. It's not just open to if you're a family group or you work in a center. It's open to the early childhood professionals, to the field at large. So that's one thing we also try to help people with is um, career mobility that, you know, it's not just a teacher. You could maybe you want to be a physical therapist or mm-hmm. maybe you want to be um, a trainer like they do at the Child Care Council. Or maybe you want to go work in higher ed. We can assist you on your career pathway because um, early childhood is not just comprised of child care, which yeah. is what mostly everyone thinks when they think of it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole array of jobs working with, with young children. And, and I think particularly to your point about like physical therapists, there's a lot of benefits that someone who's maybe they've gone through you know one of those types of programs physical therapy occupational therapy to 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 have that network of support for working with like young children specifically right because they learn how to do everything you know and and so yeah maybe it can help people kind of learn more about the array of 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 early childhood if they're if they're coming at it from from one of these other you know you know backgrounds um so who's in terms of the people trying to enter the early childhood world, not the sort of leadership side of things. Um, are, is it mostly uh, like young people? Is it people coming out of out of high school, college? Is it, are people kind of making career shifts? Like who is, who's coming through your door? Or I don't know how much you're doing virtually, but like what's the, it, to the extent there is a typical person, um, like who are they? Who's sort of engaging with you um, in your in your work at this point? So currently, um, most of my clients are people that are actually already in the field. You know, maybe they might be assistant teachers. So that's kind of like at the bottom of the totem pole or aides. And they're trying to move up. So they're looking to see um, where they can go. Then we have, you know, some directors that I say that, you know, they've been in the field for many, many years, even longer than I, and they're looking to get out. But they still have the passion to work with children and families, and they want to know what else they can do. It happens to be unfortunate the pipeline into early childhood is seems to be drying up a little bit. Like I said, we have a employment board and we have a lot of centers and stuff posting job yeah. openings, but not too many job seekers come through. Um, I was just at a local meeting um, here uh, around early childhood and at Nazareth College, you know, one of the professors said, this is the smallest class she's ever had in early, her early childhood program. There are only three people this semester. Wow. So um, we kind of have to take a look at that and see where, you know, do we have to tap into high schools to, you know, like I said, this wasn't ever a thought. No one ever talked to me about, you know, early childhood. You know, you were spoken to about being a teacher as a yeah. path, but yeah. not specifically do you want to work with young children. So to um, 
make these young people aware that this is a path that they can take um, to work with, um, to support children in their early years, which is their most critical years before they ever enter a school school system. And so we need to figure out where we need to hit um, those folks at so we can get more people entering the field to work in early care. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, to my my reading of it, I guess, there's a combination of, of, of compensation challenges, right? Oftentimes yes. people working in early childhood don't make as much as, as they would with a similar set of skills and experience and, and education or, or whatever um, with, with school-age children or, or working with adults, which is something we need to address, I think, as a society. But but then also, to your point, yeah, I think there's maybe there's a, a lack of awareness or or to the extent there is awareness, maybe there's a lack of, of awareness of how rewarding it can be to work with young children, to see them develop and, and all of that. So there's, I think, both some like financial side stuff we need to work yes. on and then maybe some sort of awareness and, and yeah, I don't know if there's cultural aspects to some of that too as to um, why it's a, a valuable line of work. I mean, maybe there's some, some work there too, but yeah, certainly something needs to be done because I think there's a real, real critical staffing shortage, not just in child care, although it does seem like there's a real staffing shortage in child care, but in all these fields where, um, you know, kids need, you know, services to thrive and, and families need these supports. So. Correct. Because I would say that it's the best review you'll ever get. So when you're working with children, you don't have to necessarily wait for that job performance review. You yeah. see it by those hugs and smiles and yeah. this Kristen that you get on a daily basis. So you know that, you know, the work you're doing is passionate. I mean, I'm still in contact with many of my children. I'm going to some, one of them are, is a senior this year, asking me, can I come to their graduation? So oh, it's nice. the connections that you build with these families. And this is a, someone that came from my home program. Yeah. Um, these parents are still in connection with me. You know, yeah. we just, I just uh, ran into a parent the other day at one of the local ice cream parlors and she's just like, you know what? You should have a you and me child care reunion so oh, we can see where idea. everyone has ended yeah. up. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's a thought. I'll give, the, I'll give yeah. that a thought. I think I went through my files um, during COVID just to see. So I have to keep files until the youngest child that I ever cared for turns 18 for legal purposes. And I counted how many children that I have served. And in those 15 years, I served 62 children. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of lives you positively benefited or influenced. Um, well, great. That's probably a great place to, to leave it. So, uh, Kristen, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, we'll also, we'll include like links um, for the work you're doing now in case people want to get interested in the little show notes that we have to the show here. But I really appreciate you joining me today on, on Raising Rochester and look forward to catching up again soon. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining me today on Raising Rochester. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and family, including on social media. And feel free to send feedback or show ideas to me at pete at thechildrensagenda.org. Until next time, on behalf of The Children's Agenda, I'm Pete Bosley.